please remain standing for today's scripture reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17, all the way through chapter 3, verse 5. If you don't have your Bibles, uh, you, you probably find a Bible in front of you underneath the chairs there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17 through 35. Hear now God's word. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. And this is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's great to be here again with you this Sunday. And during the fall, we've been journeying through the first epistle to the Thessalonians. And since we took a one-week hiatus last week because of Reformation Sunday, let me just summarize a little bit where we're at in the series. Well, Paul and his gospel partners are south of Thessalonica in Corinth, but writing to these Thessalonian Christians up north in what was then Macedonia at a church they planted not too long ago. And Paul is so anxious, you could just see that through the text, to hear how they're doing since they had to abruptly leave them and were sent away because of intense persecution in Thessalonica. And so the early reports are staggeringly good. They are growing in true work of faith. You remember this in chapter 1, labor of love and steadfastness of hope in Jesus Christ. And then two weeks ago, when we were last in Thessalonians, when we were, um, Paul addresses the Thessalonians in the first half of chapter 2 with encouragements and exhortations. If you can remember, one of the main charges to these new Christians was from verse 12, where he says, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we noted that Paul typically used a variation of this phrase in all his letters. If you're here two weeks ago, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Walk in a manner worthy of your God. There is a new standard to walk in a way not to earn eternity and salvation, but after you've been called already into his kingdom, this is now the way to live. Wonderful theologian in the 1950s, Leon Morris, reminded us that, one, that Paul's point here was that this, quote, they have been saved by such as wonderful, a wonderful God. They have been brought into his kingdom. They face a glorious future. Let them so live here and now as to be worthy of such a God. 
And then in that next verse, chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. Paul revealed that the source of their exponential spiritual growth in the gospel of Jesus Christ was because they received the word of God as actually from God himself through faith and, of course, by grace. And that word was doing this what? A transformative work in these new believers. Paul is saying we cannot grow with God's word at all, not one bit. And we pointed to different testimonies over these weeks and what was true for them in the early church is also true over the centuries in the church ever since. And so now we come to today's passage, a passage that covers the topic of community, as the title says there, biblical community, something near and dear to my heart, both theologically and ex experientially over the many years. And I'm sure we've all heard the refrain, everyone needs community, everyone needs to belong somewhere, often in Christian circles. But in our society today, and hear me out here, in our society today, we have a massive loneliness and disconnected problem. A being and remaining, quote, alone problem. And it's not getting any better. Last year, in 2020, a recent study from a news article published last year said this, some very concerning statistics. Three out of every five adults, or 61%, of our population report that they sometimes or always feel lonely, according to the Cigna US Loneliness Index. This wasn't just a poll directed towards singles, by the way, but all American citizens here. 61% reported that they sometimes or always feel lonely. Among workers aged 18 through 22, what we call Generation Z, Gen Z, 73% report some, sometimes are always feeling alone. That's up from 69% a year before. So it, the trend is going upward, 73%. There's a greater feeling of loneliness among people who use social media more frequently, the study found. At work, even, men appear to feel much more isolated than women, the study shows. And on a positive note, the baby boomer generation experienced the least amount of loneliness, at least in the workplace and probably beyond. But I thought this study was pretty fascinating when I was preparing the sermon. I think on top of that, on top of all those kind of concerning statistics, because of recent circumstances, we may be losing our relating abilities at an alarming rate. We often talk about a new normal you hear about that coming out of the pandemic? Yeah, we just got to get used to a new normal. But we also might expect a new normal when speaking about relationships among people. Here are some of the circumstantial factors that may hinder us when speaking about community. I have three of them. Number one is this. The ever-increasing role of technology in our lives. So at work, we have more and more remote working, more dependence and reliance on social media, platforms, instead of face-to-face -face conversations, we offer emails, texts, or even video. Or as one author wrote, we paradoxically are able to communicate with vastly more people today 
while becoming increasingly isolated from one another, end quote. So number one, the increasing role of technology. Number two is the pandemic. It's been a huge factor for the last two years. People anecdotally, or I think even statistically, show a third of previous regular church attenders just are not going anymore, a third. People have gotten so used to the pattern of not being with the people of God that they're opting for other means for spiritual feeding. Podcasts are replacing sermons, maybe Christian music over your worship and singing to God. The internet is becoming a quote unquote home church for more and more people, unlike those installed earlier today. There is a literal biological pandemic going on in the world, but there is also a simultaneous type of spiritual pandemic with regards to biblical relationships and community. And the really scary thing is this, even the most ardent believers are becoming numb to this. It's just part of the new normal, you might say. This has become more and more acceptable in today's church. And finally, number three is division in our nation. It's harder and harder to talk to people about anything, especially if you're on the opposite sides of the aisle politically. Sensationalism, rage over every matter, and combativeness is blanketing our society today, and I'm sure it's having its effect on the church. I won't even go into some horrifying anecdotes of what is happening in local churches because of this division. And the gospel is just getting swept under the rug when all the hate and the rage comes up to the surface. It's a problem, all of these. These factors, and presumably you can come up with so many more, are affecting our ability to connect well and live in community. And in terms of biblical community within the church, the numbers are just as discouraging. Studies show that there has been a sharp decline compared to previous generations where Christians are asked and they say they find meaningful community within their churches, the percentage has sharply declined over the generations. Just another reason to add to the growing list of urgent reasons to cheerlead our community groups, our men's and women's groups, or our serving teams throughout the week. These are the formal places that we could connect with one another outside of regular Sunday services. But the, in the early church, they were not perfect. They had their share of problems simply because we're all sinful. But they didn't seem to struggle as much with living in biblical community. They thrived in gospel community. They, they, they hungered for this, it seems. True, they had to be exhorted, rebuked, and encouraged, just like us, just like me. But there was this beautiful gospel-centered, countercultural thing happening in the early church. And so in today's context... In the megachurch model, which is megachurch is deemed any, any number of 2,000 members or above, and creating all these satellite campuses, popping up constantly where people go, quote unquote, watch a sermon recorded on video, Christians are content more and more not having any relationship with other people or even with their pastor who is preaching to them. And this is the same the other way too. Pastors are more and more content preaching to a group of people that they don't even know or who are not even available to preach in person to. The bigger a church gets, the more opportunity there is for people to fall through the cracks. We're seeing this in an alarming and increasing rate today. But as we see in these epistles, we see something different evidenced. And here we see Apostles Paul's affection for the Thessalonian Christians and a biblical community that is thriving. 
Remember earlier in the letter, he's talking, we're praying for each and every one of you. How do they do that if they have never lived life with them? But they have. They know them by name. And again, as our series theme says, Paul is seeing a thriving church in Thessalonica without any, have you noticed, any highlighting or emphasis on the size of the church in Thessalonica? or the resources, or the building, or whatever, and the programs, all of that. No. The thriving church is what happens inside the hearts of the members of the church and their faith. And so in the early church, when, you, when you're stripped away from a congregation, evidence shows, oh, the sheer pain of being separated is palpable. It seemed to be so gut-wrenching for them to not be with them in person. So I hope and pray that from today's passage, we recapture a bit of a more sound view of what biblical, biblical community actually looks like. And so my three headings for this passage is centered around the phrase biblical community. Number one, biblical community is anchored by love. I'll repeat these later. Biblical community is anchored by love. Number two, biblical community grows through afflictions. And finally, number three, biblical community is strengthened by true faith. So please look at your Bibles in chapter 2, verse 17 through 20. Biblical community is anchored by love. Let me just read 17 again. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. As noted earlier, the leaders abruptly send away Paul and the other missionaries out of Thessalonica because of intense persecution. There was more work to gospel work to be done across the world, so they selflessly convince them to escape. I'm sure those leaders will say, oh, I wish you'd just stay here permanently, but they knew the mission ahead of them, and they said, you need to go. They're just right at the doorstep. You just you need to go right now. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they go with the, their other missionaries uh, down south into Corinth. But for Paul, it was almost like he was forced to leave, kicking and screaming. It seemed to be a critical blow to his heart to leave the Thessalonians. Look at verse 17. That phrase, we were torn away, has its origin in a familial context of a mother or a father seeing their child orphaned. A child being ripped away, separated, or orphaned. It was probably way more common back then than today. And Paul is describing himself as that loving mother or father who is separated from the child, this church in Thessalonica. You don't have biblical community without a biblical love. And Paul is exemplifying biblical community because he has this angst and anxiety and torment of his soul because he has been stripped of this congregation that he loves. One theologian wrote, quote, the church is the furthest thing from a corporate business entity. It is a family knit together by Christian love, close quote. And he was reminded of the hymn that goes, blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. Basically, biblical community is anchored by love because God is love. And love is exemplified first in the Trinity. And so, as the Apostle John reminds us, we love because God first loved us. And the greatest act of love was in the finished work 
and sacrifice of the Son, Jesus Christ, and his death on the cross. But Paul is not saying, okay, let me just take a hard left turn here and bring up the theme of familial language. No, this is throughout his letter. He's consistent. Look at your Bibles. Earlier in chapter 2, verse 7, like a mother nursing a newborn. This is how he looked at the congregation. Chapter 2, verse 11, like a father looking out for his children and encouraging them, discipling them, disciplining them, exhorting them. And here with the orphan language and calling them brothers are, yes, affectionate terms, but also a theological emphasis that they are part of God's family. They are not part of a corporation and they are the employees or co-laborers or workers in that corporate sense, but they are actually part of a family, God's family. Not a stagnant, cold organization. Not a barren, aloof group of people. And when you use familial language here, denoting you're part of a true, not imaginary, but a true family of God, family of God, well, you certainly use affectionate language, then don't you? Something that is personal and not hollow or sterile. The children here today, you know when your mother or father speaks to you with affection with love. You children here, however old you are now or young you are, you know when your mother and father is expressing, yes, I'm your mother or father, or even a sibling to another sibling, but there is affection behind our relationship. That's why there is great affection and urgency in his words, I was torn away from you. We were torn away from you in person, not in heart. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to not just say, oh, well, but to see you face to face. I love how he uses the phrase in person, not in heart. <laughs> it's such a beautiful picture of gospel community. I, f I felt this actually recently, this past week, where I received uh, from longtime faithful member Bert Stoll. She sent me a card, who earlier this year moved away to Ohio. So many, so many of you I know miss her and love her dearly. Dearly, I only met her once at her home before she left. Her encouragement to me was uplifting. Her comments that she still streams and watches our Sunday services with seeming affection felt like what Paul said to the church in Thessalonica, that I'm not with you in person, but I'm with you in heart. That kind of sentiment came off of that card. This is how we should all feel when we're taken away from the local church we love. Again, not an unfamiliar organization, but a place of familial love. Paul then further expresses his care in verse 18, if you see in your Bible, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. If there was no familial affection in God's family, why would he even write to them? Why would he even say, again and again, I wanted to be with you, to encourage you, to love on you, to share my burdens with you, my afflictions? Notice the emphasis on his name personally. This is not written from some person who has no clue who the Thessalonians are. He wants them to know, this is me. <laughs> this is not some assistant. This is me saying this to you. This is the apostle who helped start this church and loves them in Christ's love deeply. And so again and again, he wanted to be with them. But he says what? Very interesting at the end of verse 18, but Satan hindered us. 
Scholars agree that we just can't know what that actually meant or was or what method Satan used some 2,000 years ago in Paul's context, but that he hindered them. But in the Bible, there's evidence that Satan, under the realm even of God's sovereign control, is sometimes permitted to harden hearts, to veil people's eyes from the gospel, and we see here hinder gospel workers from certain gospel endeavors. Again, the hows and the whys are left for another discussion and might remain a mystery to us. But the point is, Paul's devotion to the Thessalonians is evidenced greatly throughout this letter in this chapter. And supernatural hindrances are at work to attempt to slow down gospel work. This is another reason we as a church should pray. If this was happening 2,000 years ago in Thessalonica, in the hindrance of gospel moving forward, you better believe that can happen here at Westminster. So we as a church need to pray. Pray for protection against our chief enemy. Now to verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Does that sound like a guy who showed up on video screens to preach sermons to places where he barely knew anyone listening? Or is this a guy that had a heart connection with the flock and vice versa? Theologians help us immensely with unpacking these powerful verses of biblical love and biblical community. This is probably one of the, the favorite portion of the passage where I was like, I did not know that. This is amazing how this all works. What he is actually saying here in that historical context. And part of the explanation is in the phrase regarding the Lord Jesus' second coming. Do you see that? Towards the end of verse 19, before our Lord Jesus at his coming. The Greek word for that, at his coming, is parousia. means advent, arrival, a coming, etc. But did you know that this word was actually used in the ancient context, first for regional magistrates in a certain region and area, awaiting the abrupt arrival, let's say, of a king or even an emperor. And these local leaders were expected to then, in most cases, for the parousia of the emperor, to present to the coming king a crown to wear while they were visiting. Imagine the stress of saying, okay, we better get this right or we're going to die. Let's prepare a crown for this king. So Paul uses this word in the context of the king of kings who will someday return. And the crown he would lay before Jesus is not, oh God, look at all the things, how I speak, how I write, and do this and that. He says, my crown that I would lay before Jesus is you. You converts in Thessalonica. You are our joy and glory. There was nothing greater to Paul than to hear, not just of converts to faith, but of believers who were growing in the faith of the Lord Jesus. He took immense responsibility before the, our great God for their maturation and walking in step with the Lord. Oh, we have literal and figurative crowns all the time that we pursue all our whole lives, a different kind of boasting in our fallen world. And we see that inundated all the time in the things that we see or participate in. We see that in our culture and even, of course, in the dark spaces of our own hearts. But for the early church, the crown of boasting is in these familiar relationships found in the local church setting. 
And that is so precious and humbling to say then to yourself, Lord, can you recalibrate my heart? Would you recalibrate my heart to thee and for the things that truly, truly matter? So far in these first two chapters, our first heading of biblical community is anchored in love, is evidence in the lives of the Thessalonian Christians. Remember the report of their work of faith, labor of love, but also for these church planters and leaders' affection toward the flock. Now to number two, biblical community grows through afflictions. Number two is biblical community grows through afflictions. Now let's go to chapter three. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Why do I cherish older godly mentors in my life? Well, A, I didn't really get to grow up with them, especially with a, an ethnic church where there's a language barrier as a second generation guy growing up in the States. So I didn't really have a lot of older mem uh, mentors growing up. And so I'm grateful, extra grateful to have those in the last maybe decade or so. So that's why I cherish older godly mentors, but also B, because as one author points out, they've been forged in the furnace of affliction. What a great line. Older Christians, people who have gone through decades of Christian walking, have been forged in the furnace of affliction. What an image. That's why I love talking to older mentors, older believers here, who have gone through, who have uh, walked the walk, not just talked the talk. Think about any mature Christian you've gone to over the years for advice, guidance, encouragement, and even the occasional rebuke, I guarantee you that they've also persevered through these afflictions as a child of God. As John Calvin noted, the well-known reformer, these afflictions have been apportioned by God under his sovereign plan for believers. In Paul's perspective, he says, I'm destined for this. This is part of our Christian natural condition, afflictions. So that is why Paul is encouraging the Thessalonians not to be worried about what is happening to Paul and the others. This is all part of it. But Paul is really preparing the attitude of the Thessalonians who remain to not think something strange is happening to them, as Scripture says, because of suffering or overwhelming afflictions. This is part of the journey and growth trajectory for all believers, not just for these apostles. This is why we share these burdens within the church community. Many of us hide. Oh, we, we dig down. We hide the burden deep down and suffer alone. But biblical community grows when we go through afflictions together. And the striking thing is, even though we were suffering afflictions, even though they were suffering afflictions, Paul and others couldn't stand not hearing what was happening with the Thessalonians hundreds of miles away and their faith journey. So he sent one of his most trusted brothers. He didn't just send the uh, first year at seminary to go. <laughs> he sent his most trusted companion, Timothy, to make that journey back to them for their encouragement. 
biblical community grows through afflictions, and I have more to say on that in our application. Now to number three, our final heading. Biblical community is strengthened by true faith. Biblical community is strengthened by true faith. This comes from part of verse two and three, and they're in our final verse in verse five in chapter three. Verse two to three, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. And then verse five, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. He always talks about this. May our labor not be in vain. Biblical community is strengthened by true faith. However small or however big your faith is, we say this all the time, a true faith is all you need and is holy a gift from God by his grace. How does true faith strengthen us? Well, faith allows us to put into theological perspective what's happening when we suffer, when we go through afflictions. I talk to a lot of you guys all the time. There's afflictions going on even in this moment. Or realize the difficulties of being a believer in a fallen, fallen world when the world hates you, not because of your politics or your hobbies and interests or your field of work, but because of your genuine faith in the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. You need faith to carry on. What was Paul anxious about? How are the, the resources doing? How are you guys filling in the seats? Is he anxious about, did you sing five songs or four songs? Did the new program start yet? No, not that those things don't matter. But Paul was anxious really about one thing. Are they still walking and growing in faith? Remember my favorite quote from Sinclair Ferguson, whether small or big faith, whether tiny or even a gigantic faith, you still get the same strong, strong Christ. Today, you might say, well, Robin, it's like a millimeter. Or you might walk in those doors and say, I'm on the top of the mountain in my faith. Well, we all get the same strong Christ. And without faith and nurturing this faith, the enemy here in verse 5 called the tempter is ready to pounce, hinder, and destroy That would have made Paul's ministry labors in vain if they had abandoned their faith. And so although ultimately God is the one who dictates who has faith or not, that doesn't mean we stop urging others on to keep the faith, nurture the faith, and see a biblical community strengthened in faith. This is a local PCA pastor. We meet once a month for lunch, about five or six of us. And whenever I give him a hug to say goodbye, he says, don't give up. Now, he's a reformed PCA pastor. Of course, he knows that God is the one who preserves us to the very end, yet he still says, don't give up. You keep the faith. You grow in the faith that God has given you. So now what? In applications after this wonderful several verses here in Thessalonians, what can we immediately do now as we process these things from the Lord? Well, number one is this, take advantage Take advantage, there's an imperative there. Take advantage of our biblical community right in front of you, not in an imaginary community where you're like, if A, B, and C happen, then that's that's when I'm gonna take advantage of biblical community. No, right here and right now, look around you. Take advantage of this biblical community. 
Take advantage of the opportunities to connect starting today, this week. There's no need to wait or process, but to apply. I think today we obsess over personality traits and tests. I was always allergic to those things. I have to do it for like assessment centers and stuff, but I, I, don't, I don't go online and do all these things, but my friends just love it all the time. Just, are you this, are you that? Oh, this is why you said that. It's because of that personality trait. And that we convince ourselves we are not made for certain things because our personalities dictate natural actions. For instance, you may deem yourself so introverted and not extroverted enough, and you convince yourself to say, and that's why I shouldn't belong to the women's group, that's why I shouldn't go to the men's group or join the community group that Robin keeps annoyingly talking about, or to power walk as quick as possible to our car after the service ends on Sundays. But please don't mishear me. I understand social anxiety. I get angst being around people. I understand dreading awkward conversations and situations. So please don't mishear me thinking that I don't think those things exist. Or please don't mishear me and think taking advantage of opportunity means joining every last thing offered here at church. You'll burn out. You'll be overwhelmed if you try to do everything. But at least pick one lane and embrace this application. I love going to my office after service, after I say hi, after meetings or whatever, and I close up shop and I'm ready to go home and I still see many people in the lobby just sharing life and catching up. I'm sure praying for each other, sharing burdens. That is one lane that you could actually do here today. You were created and saved for this. Don't let any personality test tell you different. You were created and saved for biblical community. Regardless of past hurts, past experiences that might have been bleak or negative, regardless of what tests show, you were sovereignly saved for this purpose to connect with one another here in this local setting, to rejoice with others but also mourn with others, to bear one another's burdens and afflictions in faith. And so we are grateful to provide the stream, the live stream, don't get me wrong, for those who are traveling or those who are disabled and shut in. But the live stream could never truly replace biblical community and fellowship, brothers and sisters. I say that with a, in all humility and a pastoral plea. We have 25 to 35 households stream every Sunday. That's probably 50 to 60 people that we want you here. I know we're still going through a pandemic. People have different feelings about that. But when you feel safe enough in the health sense, Oh, don't let this habit stick. Come, join us. It's really not just for your sake, but it's for our sake too, for our blessing and encouragement. Some of you might think nobody cares if I come or don't care. I care. You have at least one person that cares, but I know there's so many more that care for you to be here to worship our great God together. Some of you are surprised when I reach out and say, hey, I haven't seen you in a bit. Is everything okay? That's not out of some judgment on you, but because there's a great brotherly duty to care. Those of you who are used to churches being in the thousands and nobody would ever really notice if you were there or gone, embrace a different culture being at a smaller church where people know you, can embrace you, care for you, and actually want to learn more about you. So take advantage, brothers and sisters. I'm going to quickly go through this. Number two, share the burden of afflictions. That's number two. 
There are afflictions happening right now, even in a church of less than 200 people. There are heavy, heavy afflictions, burdens. You don't need to know the whole story. You don't need to know or gossip about the details, but you can pray. You could send a card. You could listen. You could reach out. You could be patient. You could be sensitive, but you could be biblically loving in Christ's love for those who are hurting in afflictions. Again, when you do this, this is not just what's good for you, but sharing afflictions is also good for those that get to carry them too. And finally, number three, encourage one another's faith. This is what Paul and the others did in a world-class way, to encourage one another's faith. So humbled a couple weeks ago in a men's group, an older gentleman joined us. I won't say his name to embarrass him, who shared his struggle with faith. Later, as I drove home, I thought, what a humble man to say, I have doubts. I struggle with faith. And to hear younger men say, oh, you just need to do this and that and this. If I was his age, I would probably say, these young dudes. (laughs) They don't know what they're talking about and the hardships of life. Instead, he humbly took it with cheer, with conviction, Oh, encourage one another's faith. We need to do that younger and older, vice versa, peer to peer, pastor to member, friend to friend. Encourage, and it's okay to say, don't give up. Don't give up the faith. Where do we get this biblical community from? The Trinity, this mutual love in the Godhead, in the Godhead's community. Our model to love in our biblical community comes from God. He instructs us to what is already of his character, not something abstract that we have to mysteriously find and stumble upon, but something that is catchable and reflective of his own glory. So embrace, brothers and sisters, what God wants you to embrace, and let's be so grateful for biblical community because at the end of the day, this is all part of what a thriving church resembles. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day may be filled with your blessing, may be filled with laughter, may be filled with warm sympathies, may be filled with mourning with those who are mourning, rejoicing with those who rejoice, may be filled with biblical community of sharing prayer requests, of praying for one another, of reaching out just to even say hello, of welcoming, of nurturing, of encouraging faith to proceed and be strengthened by these ordinary means of grace that you have provided us. Lord, help us to be a thriving church, not based on worldly standards, but on biblical directives and standards. And to this, may you be glorified alone. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.